Good morning, everybody. It is really good to see you. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. Before we get into the last um, sermon in Galatians, I wanted to remind you, if you're a member, um, that we have a member gathering after the close of service. So we'll do our benediction, and then we'll do like a five-minute bathroom break, kind of let the kids get resettled, and then we will do a member gathering where we're going to hear stories of what God is doing in each other's lives, going to spend some time praying, and then if you guys have any questions about the coming year and the kind of all the information that we sent to you in an email, um, you can ask those questions then, and if you're like, what email? Check your email. Let us know if you didn't get it. We'll send it to you, but um, but yeah, that's what we're going to do. So now, you can please turn to Galatians 6, the end of Galatians, and this final... Um, exhortation, this final urging that Paul has for these young Christians in the churches in the Galatia area. We'll go ahead and read it and then we'll pray. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that your spirit would be here. That it would help us to see you, to see your character to see your essence, to see your nature, to understand that you are God, that you are worthy of our praise and our worship, and that, Lord, nothing that we do gives us a right or can earn the ability to be your people, but it's only because of what you have sent your Son to do for us that we are able to have a relationship with you, that we are able to have hope in this world, that we are able to have true and lasting peace. And so, God, I ask that you would interrupt us this morning with your word, all of us, that you would calm us, that you would focus our minds and our hearts on your Son and on him crucified. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was reading Psalm 119, kind of at the beginning of this year, and Psalm 119 is very long. And there's, it's 
very repetitive intentionally. And so it kind of, you know, says the same thing in a lot of different ways. And one of the things that I was noticing it saying was how the psalmist was saying over and over again, how he delights in the word of God. He delights, he loves the word. He longs for the law of God. He wants to know the precepts of the Lord. And he speaks so highly and warmly about them. And I will confess to you that Psalm 119, because it's so long and repetitive, is not stir my heart to delight. And so I was feeling somewhat convicted about that. I was like, what is the deal here? I don't feel delight. Like, I don't, I don't feel that. What, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I think probably many of you feel the same way. When you're reading scripture and you're um, just trying to digest these truths that seem so earth-shattering, that they change people's lives, they seem so monumental that Paul here is willing to forsake a comfortable life, a life of power, a life that was very controllable and basically determined for him. He was in line to kind of climb the ladder of religious power in the region. And instead he gave that up. And he gave it up for what? To be beaten. To be scarred from his beatings. You're kind of like, what on earth would make him do that? He's telling us not to boast in the flesh. Instead, to boast in the cross. And how has that turned out for you, Paul? Not too well from the appearance of things. I don't want to be beaten. Do I really have to do that? And so there's a problem that we come into contact with when we're talking about kind of the claims of Scripture and even how we see it transform other people's lives. And that problem is that there's something missing in our ability to achieve or our ability to conjure up our own worthiness. That's the essence of it. That's the essence of it. You're like, I'm trying to do that. And you're striving and striving. And often, you're just like, I can't do it. So I'm going to turn my attention onto something I can do instead. I'm going to work, instead of addressing the spiritual concerns in me, instead of looking at my desires and what I most deeply want in this life, instead, I'm going to make sure that my external world is the way that I like it. And we get really busy with that. And we get kind of obsessed with that. And pretty soon, we've just totally become numb to those deeper realities. And so here at the end of Galatians, as Paul is continuing to plead with the people of this church to not allow this circumcision party to lead them out of the gospel, lead them out of depending on Christ, and instead lead them back into works-based righteousness, works-based merit, finding their value, their belonging, their identity in what they are doing for God. And he's pleading with them. And it's a really simple passage. It's a summary of the book in so many ways. 
So it's really simple because he gives you a outline of what it looks like to live according to the flesh, to live for the flesh. And then he urges you by his example, live for the cross. And then he ends it by giving us an example of what it looks like to have freedom and new life that flow out of a life lived for the cross. And so we're going to talk first about this idea of living for the flesh. The word that is used here in our English translations is boast. And I think that's one that doesn't really connect well. It may have connected at some time. I think it's a good translation of the word. But for our culture, we don't like boasters in anything. Like people who are boasting, we look down on them. And so we're like, what are, well, it's, yeah, I don't boast. I don't boast in my flesh. Nobody does that. Nobody would say they do that. And so instead of boast, think about kind of like the motivating principle that you're living life from. What is the motivating principle that you're living life from? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Because that is what a boast was. A boast is kind of this military term that um, the generals or the leaders of armies, it's the speech they would give right before they charge, right? They're boasting in the strength or the size or their weapons, whatever it is. Egypt is said to have boasted in her chariots and her horses. And so they boast, they conjure up this motivation to go do something. And so... When it's talking about boasting, think about what motivates you. What is it that motivates you to live this life, to do what you do? And we're going to see in this text, we actually see three different categories of what it looks like to boast in the flesh, what it looks like to live for the flesh. The first one is pleasure. It's indulging the flesh. It's pleasure. It's seeking pleasure. And so you see this because of these these leaders who are leading the Galatians out of the gospel and into this works-based righteousness. And why were they doing it? Well, they were doing it because it was giving them an ego boost. It was almost like they were able to say, yeah, look at how good I am because of how many people I've circumcised. Look at that. It was a way of kind of like feeding their ego. And it was purely pleasure motivated. That makes them feel good. The applause of man feels good, doesn't it? When people are praising you, praising your accolades, praising your work, praising how smart you are, Praising how good you look, how it feels good. That motivates us. That gets us up. Gets us going. It's easy to live for that. Easy to live for the flesh. And that's something that is important for us to remember. This is not, oh yeah, no, we don't live for the flesh. This is really, really challenging. And so my hope is that somewhere you can see where this same type of warfare is happening internally for you. So don't just write it off quickly and saying like, oh yes, this is what the people who, you know, don't take themselves seriously or don't take their faith seriously do. No, this this is a human struggle to live for pleasure. 
to want to feel good. I mean, think about some of the ways that we do this. We want to have fun experiences that make us feel alive. We want to have good vacations to validate all the hard work that we've done. We want to have the finer things to validate all the sacrifice that you put forth in school. And there's something that happens. I've had this experience. I know you, probably you have to. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But when you get into like a really, really, really nice car and you feel the leather, you're like, ooh, this is nice. And there's something about that that's just deeply validating. It's like, yeah, I deserve this. This is the type of car I should be in. It might not be a car for you. It might be a house. It might be an office. It might be fill in the blank. Living for pleasure is an indulging the flesh. You're living for the flesh. The second thing that we see is if you're not living for pleasure, maybe you're living for protection, to protect the flesh. That was another reason why people were getting circumcised. In the text, it says that they were doing this because they were afraid of being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they were just like, you know what? It's not worth it. I don't want to get beaten. I don't want to get embarrassed. I don't want to get socially alienated. It's not that big of a deal. So I'll just go along with it. That relieves the tension. Great. My life's comfortable. I'm safe. And I think that this one is, is very subtle because it's so easy to convince yourself that it's no big deal. It's so easy to convince yourself that, you know what, it's not really that big of a deal if I pretend for a little bit to not be a Christian or if I kind of like go along with some of my friends who are just kind of like mocking Christianity because that would hurt. That would hurt to try and interrupt that. That's awkward. It's not worth it. It's okay. And so it's really easy to sidestep something or to do something because there's cultural pressure on you. And it's an incredible temptation. And what Paul says is that that is a temptation that is coming from the flesh. It's self-preservation. And that is a type of works righteousness, according to Paul's schematic here. So that type of tactic is in the ecosystem of finding your greatest motivating principle, not in what God has said about you in Jesus, but instead of what your flesh is saying about you. You're comfortable. You're safe. It's okay. And then finally, your purpose. So being motivated by the flesh. And this is kind of a summary. This is kind of what happens when these are allowed to develop and to grow in your life. Is all, of, all of a sudden they're the motivating principle for why you do what you do. 
And so another way to say it is it's incredibly self-focused and selfish. Think back to last week when we were talking about what it looks like to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens, to use your freedom to serve another person, and how selfless, how sacrificial that often is. Willingly bringing on another, the burden of another, not for any selfish reason, but only out of love, only out of response to what God has done for you. And contrast that with the flesh. How can I use people? How can I get rid of the things about that person that get in the way of what I want? Again, I'm as guilty as anybody. I go to sleep thinking, okay, I'm going to get a good night's sleep tonight. And if I get woken up by a child, my first instinct is not to say, how can I serve my child? Right? My flesh, it wants sleep. The motivating principle at work there is selfish. It's self-serving. I'm living out of my desire for the flesh, my own selfish desire. And so we all do this. We all live from the flesh. And we're looking for pleasure, protection, and purpose. And yet, we usually know that none of those things, the flesh can't deliver on what it pretends to deliver on. The flesh, if you allow enough time to go by, will take you back into bondage, into slavery, to use the metaphor that Paul has in Galatians. Because that job that you've been chasing, that body that you've been working for, that house that you know will make your life so much better, when you get them... You're not satisfied. What's next? What can I get next? What do I need to do next? And so ultimately, it disillusions us. And I think that's kind of part of the transition from early adulthood into middle and late adulthood, is that battle of just realizing, you know what, this world just does not satisfy It disappoints. So there's a couple of ways to respond to that. You can say, okay, I'm going to double down. It's probably because I haven't kind of like fully leveraged my resources to just achieving what I want. And so I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing that, trying to get that. Or you just kind of throw up your hands and say, you know what? That's what this life is. And you're just bitter and disillusioned. Thankfully, that's not where Paul leaves us. He urges us instead of that, instead of seeking to gratify the desires of the flesh and living from the flesh and boasting from the flesh. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so instead, we should be living for the cross 
And so I want to do something this morning because I think that those words aren't super powerful. They might sound good in a church. Like, yeah, live for the cross. But I think we need to go to the cross. I think we need to see what's there that's worth boasting in. And so I'm going to read from Mark 15. And I just want you to listen, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we see. This is Mark's account of Jesus being crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in, purple, in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. And spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him... They stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may, we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So I want us for a moment to turn down the frequencies of our minds that are asking what should I do? What should I do in response to this? Turn down the frequency of your mind that's asking, what should I do later today? Turn down the frequency of your mind that is asking all the interesting questions, and there's many. And instead, I want us to just see the crucified Jesus. I want us to see a prophet who was put to death as a sign. His death is a prophetic sign 
of what it looks like for sin to be punished by a holy God. Agony, despair. Punishment for our rebellion. There's a priest. The priest on the cross. The one who is reforming temple worship throughout his life. The one who became the perfect sacrifice. The one who did tear down the temple by his death. And the one who did rebuild it through his resurrection and the spirit. And as we think of the temple, we think of the difference that occurred before and after the death of Christ. In the temple, there was an altar, and above the altar in the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, empty. Now Jesus identified his body as the temple. And as he tore down his body by offering it to God to be crucified there on that cross, he sat in the mercy seat, fulfilling the void, the need for the people to receive mercy because he is a good and faithful high priest. And we see a king clothed with a crown of thorns, in purple, mocked, derided. The deserving and righteous ruler of all of the land, giving himself up to death, to apparent defeat at the hands of a wicked enemy, only to prove that he was restoring God's kingdom. You see... The cross is the full picture of the character, the beauty, the power, the love of God revealed for us. And do you see what happens when we look at the cross? For a moment, we're not quite as obsessed with ourselves. For a moment, we're filled with wonder. For a moment, we're filled with worship. We're filled with love for God. That's what new life feels like. That's what freedom feels like. When you come to the cross and you see Jesus and you receive him and trust in him, and you don't stray from the centrality of the cross. What comes out of you is new life. It's a desire to be united with Jesus, to be with him, to go to him. You see this as the women are watching, they are just waiting to go and be with him. They're seeing him get crucified, and they're helpless. They can't get close to him, but they're waiting. They have a desire well up in them to be with him, 
And if you have that, that's new life in you. That's what it means to be united to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says, For if anyone is in Christ, that is united to him, if anyone takes refuge in his crucifixion, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And so... When Paul is saying that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but new creation, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that desire that has fundamentally shifted in you. And here's what that feels like. Here's what it's like to experience new life instead of pleasure, protection, and purpose. (laughs) You're humble, you're happy, and you're holy. You're humble because you have seen the crucified king and you know that his prophetic sign was your death. His death was a sign of your death. And those who were mocking Jesus were actually right. Why doesn't he just come down? They were mocking him, but they didn't know that he actually could have if it weren't for our sin if it weren't for his love for us that kept him on the cross. And so we're humbled because he died for us, not because of anything that we've done positively to earn his love. He died because we were sinners. And then we're made happy. And if you think of how this corresponds to how we are talking about what it looks like to boast in the flesh, something that, yes, is tempting, but ultimately unsatisfying. And then you come to the cross and the sheer magnitude of what is happening with the God man dying in front of us is astounding. The weight of it the beauty of one so perfect that he was able to offer that type of sacrifice under intense agony and pain and pressure. And he didn't stay dead. He vanquished death. He rose from the grave and ushered in eternal life. And yes, if you're united with him, that is a prophetic sign of the new life to come. What you are promised after this world, after the flesh, the age of this flesh passes away, either when we die or when Jesus returns, we get that eternal life that his resurrection is the first fruits of. And that is the greatest satisfaction of our deepest longings those things that you really want out of your life right now, the pleasure that you want, the comfort that you want, the purpose that you want, they're all fulfilled in the resurrection. And so you're happy. And then finally, you're holy. 
Paul puts it this way. He says that because he boasts in the cross, because he goes to the cross, it is there that he was crucified to the world and the world to him. It's a really interesting way, linguistically, to say that he is now separate from the world. Because he is so filled with the affirmation of having his righteousness found not in what he does, but in what Christ has done. He's able to love God without constraint, without worrying about the mocking that he's going to to receive. Without getting just overwhelmed by despair because he's physically weak, because he gets sick. Why? Because anything that he suffers reminds him of that great suffering of his Savior. And it teaches him, just like it teaches us, about the extent and the power of Jesus' love for us. He suffered for us. And that creates in us that same type of desire to become holy. To see the cross as the place where our flesh was put to death. And also the birth of the new life within us. Because just like after God had finished each day of creation, and he said, it is morning, there was morning and there was evening, the third day, and it was good. It's another way of saying it was finished. When Jesus died, he cried out, this day of new creation, it is finished. Something you receive, it's not something you earn. And that, um, that reminded me, that's, that's where I ultimately arrived, and I want you to get to that same place of just feeling frustrated by that war of desires. When I was reading Psalm 119 and just the repetition, like, okay, I'm distracted, all this stuff. I realized something. I was completely overlooking something. I was completely overlooking the fact that I was dead spiritually. I wasn't sick. I was dead. I had no desire for God. I wouldn't read the Bible. What did I do to now all of a sudden be reading the Bible and saying, well, oh, you, you aren't delighting much in God's word. Tisk tisk. That's crazy. That's like a spoiled child. And I realized something. I was like, the very fact that I have even the smallest delight in God's word is a miracle that's only attributable to Christ's death and resurrection. Do not forget that. It's so easy to overlook our spiritual life in Christ because we get distracted, because the things of this world kind of drown it out, and because it's just in seed form right now. And it takes a long time to grow and to age and to mature and to bear fruit. But just remember, the existence of that seed is a work of God. So don't allow anybody to take you back into the lie of living for your own pleasure, of living to protect yourself, of living for a self-fulfillment principle. 
Instead, go to the cross. Be humbled, be happy, and be holy. Because our flesh, like the grass, will wither and the flowers will fade. But the word of God endures forever. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone to battle against our own desires, but that you have called each one of us who hears you, who sees our Savior on that cross, who trusts that his death is the satisfaction of the punishment of our sins that, Lord, you are doing that work. And so, God, I ask that we would be free, that we would know that freedom, and that from it we would live in a way that demonstrates our love for our Savior, to live in a way that shows very clearly how much we trust him, how much we love him. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to guard us against our own hearts that want to go astray, against the forces of this world that want to use us and to rip us out of the grace that you have secured for us in Christ. And Lord, help us to yearn for your return the return of your son, when we will see him face to face, when we will be filled and we will enjoy perfect fellowship with him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.